Now you can. Now you can. So good morning. I'm thankful that you are here this morning. My name is Ed Griffinhagen. I'm one of the pastors on our staff at Church on the Trail. Lots of places you could be today, but the Lord has us together here for a reason, whether you're here physically or or if you're watching on, on YouTube or Facebook or, or whatever, this could, be, this could be Thursday of next week, and, and you're watching, so we're thankful uh, that you have tuned in however it is that you got here. Uh, as we get started this morning, I want to do two quick things, I guess, maybe three. Number one, I want to thank you all for allowing Susan and I to attend a pastor and wives conference last weekend. You may not even know that you all allowed us to go to attend the Pastor and Wives Conference last weekend, but we did, and there was 107 pastors and wives, and it was an, really was truly um, an incredible, it was an incredible weekend of, of refreshing and of growth, and it was just bathed and steeped in prayer. It was awesome, and so uh, I'm, I'm thankful for that, number one. Number two, last week, if you were here or if you were watching last week, the message that the Lord spoke through Norman Dunlap was off the chains. And I am so, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> um, he's got his head in his hands right now. Um, I'm so thankful for him and his wisdom. You know, I'd like to suck his brain out, you know. Um, but I'm thankful for him and his wisdom, and we are blessed as a church that, uh, that he and Sharon are part of our church family. I want to tell you one other thing about Norman. About a year ago, he he was the uh, he's been involved with Sound Choices uh, pregnancy clinic here in Columbus for a long time, and has served as the uh, chairman of the board or the president. I forget what the name is, Chief Poobah, whatever you would call that. And he asked me to serve on the board last year, and, and I'm thankful for that. And we have a relationship now with Sound Choices, and there and and this is not done by Sound Choices, but we're going to give a couple T-shirts away today, and it's we are extremely. I want to say pro-life. That sounds weird. Of course we're pro-life. We just want to focus as a church on the sanctity of, of life and how precious every single life is and how precious every, that, that every life matters. And, you know, we as a church were involved in a movie that was done last year. It's coming out in, in August, the same sort of subject. And, and so we've got some T-shirts that somebody donated super generously donated, and what it says, if you can see it, it says, baby lives matter while in the womb I knew you from God. And so we're going to give a couple of these t-shirts away, and we're probably going to give a couple of these t-shirts away every week until we ain't got no more t-shirts to give away. So I'm just going to toss them out there, and whoever gets them, gets them. <laughs> that was a good catch. Sign him up. That was a good catch. Anyway, anyway, today we are in the second message of a series that we're calling Scattered, Broader, and Wider. And we've been walking through for several months, we've been walking through the book of Acts. Broke up Acts into different message series, but uh, we find ourselves today in the latter part of chapter 9 of the book of Acts. And it's part 2 of a message that, that we started, not last week, but the week before um, and the name of that message was the indicators of a rocking and rolling personal ministry. The, the indicators, the marks of an effective personal ministry. We kind of did part one two weeks ago, and we're going to finish that off today. And, and when we did that two weeks ago, we introduced, first of all, the idea that every one of us, if we're Christian, every one of us have a personal ministry, sort of a one-on-one -on -one ministry to the folks, to the people around us, the people in our world, so to speak. And in this part of Acts, the Apostle Peter models that out. What does that kind of look at? And we looked, uh, we looked at and we're going to look at today, looking at his ministry, Peter's, after Pentecost. And if we look at it and we dig into it and we investigate it, we can learn a lot of positive things uh, about our own ministries and our own relationships with the people around us and how to make our, our personal ministries super effective. Peter's life on the, on the good side of the cross, his life walks this out for us to see. We see his actions walking out his faith. You know, it's super detrimental 
when your actions fly in the face of what you say you believe. Y'all see that all the time, do you not? That is super hurtful to the kingdom. And so we see in Peter, we see his actions and the way he lives his life and what he does. We see that walk out what he believes. And his worldview, Peter's worldview changes when Jesus walks out of that grave alive. And now he acts like that. Now I do love me some Paul too, don't get me wrong. But Paul's approach can be very, very theological. Book of Romans. Romans basically lays out every Christian doctrine that we know. Every doctrine is laid out for us to see in the book of Romans. In simple terms, everything that we, we ought to believe as a Christ follower is laid out in the book of Romans. So we're talking about, though, the, the effectiveness of a Christian life. And we see that Paul's approach is super theological, uh, where Peter's is very action-oriented. Peter is an action guy. And for me and you, we need both of those things. We need right doctrine, we need right beliefs, and we need right actions. We need to believe the right things, and we need to walk that out in the same way. We need theology, and I think, honestly, I think that you and I learn best when we see the principles that are laid out in the Word, when we see those things become action and activities in somebody's life. So Peter, Peter preaches this message in Acts chapter 2. Huge crowd at Pentecost. Peter preaches this kind of the first Christian message after the resurrection. Peter preaches at Pentecost. But then it's to thousands of people. But then, um, then we see much of his life is spent on personal ministry, on one-on-ones, on one-on-twos, on small groups, and stuff like that. We see Peter involved. That was number one two weeks ago, if you remember, the number one mark of an effective ministry He was involved. He was involved in people's lives. We saw it in the healing miracle of this man who had been paralyzed in the bed for eight years. You got to be involved in the lives of your friends. You got to be involved in the lives of the people that you work with. Be involved in the lives of your uh, your family. If you want to make a difference for Christ, you got to be involved in people's lives. And then a couple weeks ago, we we saw number two, was that Peter lifted up Jesus. Peter didn't lift up Peter. Peter lifted up his Lord. He lifted up his Savior. He lifted up the name of Jesus. He was Jesus exalting. That was the kind of the language that I used. And if you remember, we said this. We said if, if any ministry, big, small, medium size, whatever, if any ministry is set up to exalt anything or anybody other than Jesus Christ, it is destined to fail. It is destined to fail. That was number two. Now, today I want to run through four more of these kind of indicators, these marks of an effective ministry. I I want to try to run through three sort of quickly and then park for a minute on number four. And so what these, these four that we're going to go over today are that he was available. Peter was available. Peter was prayerful. Peter was fruitful. He was available. He was prayerful, he was fruitful, and he was free from prejudice. So this first one today is that he was available. God wants you available. It doesn't take talent, y'all. It doesn't take skill. It doesn't take any special gifting. It doesn't take any ability to be available. You get up in the morning, your feet hit the floor, and you're just, God, I'm here. What do you want me to do? I'm available. If you're not available, this is going to sound harsh. And there's a few things I'm going to go ahead and preface today. I'm probably going to offend some people. Just get that out there. First thing, available. And if you're not available, then really and truly you're useless to the Lord. I'm not saying you're useless as a human being, but you're useless to the Lord if you're not available for him to use. And that is a truth. Look at verse 36, Acts chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 36 through 43. Verse 36 said, now there, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. I giggle every time I say the name Dorcas. I don't know why. There was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. So Peter had been in Lydda. Lydda. Now he's moved about 10 miles west to Joppa. And I feel like we're about to see another miracle. 
And for sure, this miracle and the miracle that, he, that, that, that the Lord did through Peter a couple weeks ago, earlier in chapter 9, with, the, uh, with the, the, the guy that had been in bed paralyzed for eight years, they hinge, they hinge on the power of God, but also on the availability of Peter. He was available because God works his stuff through his people. Does he not? He works his stuff out through his people. And Peter was, the, was an apostle. Peter was the closest to Joppa at the time. And so Peter is who God has chosen in his sovereignty to, sovereignty to work some things out. Verse 37 says, In those days she became, she, uh, Tabitha, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. So she, she got sick, she died, they cleaned her, they cleaned her up, they put her in an upper room, so she died. And it's a little odd that they put her upstairs. Anybody know why it's a little odd that they put her upstairs? Jews don't embalm. Didn't embalm then, don't embalm today. If you're Jewish, you end up getting in the ground quick because if you don't embalm, the body kind of does stuff. And so for typically, Jews bury very, very quickly. Well, they didn't do it with her. They put her upstairs. Why do you think that is, that they put her upstairs and didn't get her buried. Look at verse 38. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Please come to us without delay. They send some people up there. What did Peter do? Did he send the, the call to voicemail? Did he ignore the text? Look at what verse 39 says. He didn't do that. Look at what verse 39 says. Verse 38 says, please come to us without delay. So verse 39, so Peter rose and went with them. He was available. He was available. Was he prompted by the Holy Spirit? Was he led by the Holy Spirit? The text doesn't say so, but I'm sure that he was led by the Holy Spirit. But he was also sensitive to the needs of people, and he was available. He made himself available. Y'all, there's huge blessing that comes when we are available to be used by the Lord. Text goes on and says this. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. She was a seamstress. She made stuff. She had this little group of ladies, saints, the Bible calls calls them. And when the Bible calls somebody a saint, it just means that they're they're a Christ follower. It doesn't mean we put them up on some pedestal like they're some some bishop or something. Bible uses the word saints. These women were believers. They had a little group. She led a little sewing growth group, bottom line, and she made stuff. And the Bible says, all the widows stood beside him, stood beside Peter, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Now, I don't have time today to talk about the huge, massive blessing that women are to ministries, but Dorcas was one of those ladies. Paul, the apostle Paul, talks about Phoebe and Priscilla and Mary and Trophina and, and Trophosa and Persis and Julia. And he talks about the sister of Nereus and he talks about Lois and Eunice and, and all these other ladies. And that is a, another message for another day. But as an aside, where would we be without the, the influence and the ministries of godly women? Men, we would be in a world of hurt. We would be in a world of hurt. Scripture teaches that godly women make all the difference in the world. Now, back to what we're talking about. Peter is available to God to do the work that God has called him to do. He made himself available, number one. Number two is this. He was prayerful. Peter was prayerful. Look at verse 40. But Peter put them all outside. Who is this that he put outside? all these other ladies and all these other believers. Put them all outside, and he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. He said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Like, for real, y'all, what a wow kind of thing. We just sang that song, that last song that the worship team led us in. It was all about this kind of stuff. This woman had been dead probably a couple of days, we believe. I'm sure some stuff had started to happen to her body. 
yet she comes out of this whole deal whole and fresh and clean and alive, good as new. God had performed a miracle, and the miracle happened because Peter was available and because Peter was prayerful. The text says he knelt down and prayed, and he turned to the body, and he said, Tabitha, arise. It doesn't tell us the time between he prayed and Tabitha, arise, but I'm going to guess that he prayed for a bit. I'm just going to guess. And based on what I think I know about Peter and what I believe about the nature and the character of God, I bet the prayer was something like, Lord, you are a promise-keeping God. Lord, I believe that you are exactly who you say you are. Lord, you can do exactly every single thing, Lord, that you say you can do. And I'm just a guy. And I'm just a sinful guy. And there's nothing at all that I can do on my own, but Lord, when I am weak, you are strong. And Lord, I'm begging you, and I know, Lord, that you want your gospel to spread, and you want your gospel to spread broad and wide. And you got to remember, picture him. He's kneeling down beside this dead body on this bed. But he says, crying out to the Lord, I know, Lord, that you want your gospel to spread broad and wide, and you want it to spread quick. So, Lord, I beg you to bring your, your saint Dorcas back. And when you do it, please use that, Lord. Use that. to. Peter had a heart for people. And he said, Lord, please do that to bring people into a saving relationship with you in Jesus' name. Tabitha, arise. Bam. Think about that. And she gets up. Dead? Was she really dead? That was, could not have been weaker. Was she really dead? She was dead. When she got back up, was she really alive? Yes. She's really alive. And you know, this prayer, this heartfelt prayer that the Bible doesn't record what it was, I just really think it was something like that. And a lot of times, y'all, prayer is really just admitting that I can't do it and God can do it. He wants us in that place of leaning on him, of not leaning on ourselves. And we are so quick, y'all, to, to, to lean on ourselves and our own understanding and our own strength and our own power. And the power of, of the Holy Spirit will really only be unleashed when we submit all of ourselves to him. Does that make sense? And so that's this prayer. Verse 41. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling all the saints and the, and the widows, he presented her alive. He just gives her his hand, lifts her up. She's alive. And he calls out yeah, he's, to all those people, y'all can come on back in here. Here she is. She's good as new. Can you imagine their joy at their friend Tabitha is now alive? They can put their growth group, their little sewing growth group back together. They're overwhelmed with joy. But you know what? At the end of the day, God didn't do it for them. He, truthfully, he really didn't even do it for, for her. He doesn't do it for Peter. What does verse 42 say? It says, and, and it became known throughout all Joppa and what? And many believed in the Lord. It became known through all Joppa that this happened and many believed in the Lord. Why did he do it? I think he did it. For the same reason that most all the miracles are done. They were all confirming signs to prove to the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ was true. He did it as a sign. He did it as a sign. The Lord had evangelism in mind. Don't you know that he has evangelism in mind all the time? The gospel to spread from one person to the next. Peter goes down to Joppa to comfort he thinks, to comfort uh, a whole bunch of grieving widows and grieving saints whose friend had died. And what happens? Revival kind of breaks out. So Peter was prayerful. He hit his knees and he prayed. His ministry was effective because everything was grounded and founded and sat on top of this layer of prayer. It brings us to the fifth, which is the third today, but the the fifth indicator, and that's fruitfulness. Peter was fruitful. Look at verse 42 again. 
And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Many people believed. The fruit came as a result of God's using Peter. Peter's available. Peter's prayerful. God uses him, and then there's fruit. Listen, when me and you are saved, we are saved to be fruitful. We are not saved to sit at home and play video games. We are saved to be fruitful. John chapter 15, in verse 8, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified that you bear a little fruit, some, some, some fruit of some raisins. No, it says much fruit that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You're going to name the name of Christ. There ought to be fruit. Now, at the beginning of the walk of a Christian, there may be a little bitty baby, little teeny raisin fruits. But as you walk and grow and you're in the Word and you're in fellowship with other believers and you're digging in the text of the Bible and you're praying and you're growing, the fruit naturally should grow. That's just the natural progression of the life of a Christ follower. Fruit. Now, you may not see it all in your own lifetime. Maybe even most of the time we don't. It's a guy named William Carey. William Carey in the late 1700s, kind of known as the father of missions. He goes to India in 1793 Somebody smarter than me, how many years ago was that? 18, 19, two, about 230 years ago. Did I do that right? They told me there would be no math today. I think that's about right. Long time ago, late 1700s. He spends 35 years in ministry in India. It's 35 years there, he only saw a very small handful of people get saved. 35 years. In fact, he preached the gospel Day after day after day after day after day when he got there in 1793. And it was seven years before the first person gave their life to Christ. Day after day after day for seven years. He spent the 35 years in India translating the Bible into multiple Indian dialects. And every single missionary who has been to India since then has used William Carey's work to share the gospel. William Carey's bearing fruit 200 years after his death. I got a friend that, is, that I know that's been a friend of our church that is a, a missionary in India. He in lives in a, in a leper colony. I didn't even know leper colonies still existed. But he's been living for, I don't know how long, Susan, 20 years? Probably living in a leper colony in India. He's using William Carey's work that was done 230, 220 years ago. William Carey's in heaven, but he's still bearing fruit. Because you see, some people plant, some people fertilize, some people cultivate, some people water, and who provides the increase? The Lord provides the increase. Christians are to be fruitful. We'll be fruitful if we follow the patterns that are laid out in this book. They're there. They tell us what to do. They give us the template. They give us the, 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 the pattern of, of how to act and how to speak to people and how to treat people. How to bear fruit. Fruit. Galatians chapter 5 starting in verse 22. says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Ephesians 5, Paul talks about uh, walking as children of light. Walk as children of light. Act like you're in the light. Don't act like you're in the dark. You used to act like you're in the dark, but you came out of the dark and you came into the light. Then act like you're walking in the light. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. He says that the fruit of light is found in everything that is good and right and true. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 of chapter 13 of Hebrews says that Praise is the fruit of my lips. Y'all, ministering to people in need is fruit. Holy living is fruit. Blessing other people is fruit. All of those things are fruit. But more than anything, at the top of the chain, at the top of the, the hierarchy, I don't know, 
more than anything, new believers are fruit. More than anything. Now, I'm an evangelist, so I just get all kind of jacked up when we talk about somebody going from lost to found, going, people going from blind to sight, people going from spending eternity in hell with spending eternity in the arms of the Savior. New believers, people giving their life to Christ, people coming into a saving relationship with Jesus, fruit. And you may very well never, ever be in a place where you see, uh, see throngs of people coming to Christ. But whatever you're doing, if you're doing it faithfully and you're doing it obediently and you're doing it prayerfully, whatever you're doing, it, it will multiply. It will multiply, maybe indirectly, but it will multiply into, into folks being saved. Typically, it's one at a time. One person at a time. The Lord crosses your path with another human at work. Like, I don't know. And, and somehow the conversation turns to the Lord. And you just have a conversation. And they say something's different about you. You used to be a jerk, and now you're kind. What is it? Well, let me, that's what was said to me. Well, let me tell you about how I pushed the jerkness away a little bit. And maybe I'm a little kinder than I was. Let me tell you why that is. All, these are not super difficult conversations. Now, I'm not talking about beating somebody upside the head with a Bible on a street corner that's a total stranger. I'm talking about people that God has put in your life somehow, family, friends, coworkers, whoever it is. So when we do that, God will bless that. You know, several weeks ago, I mentioned some names. I mentioned Mordecai Ham. I mentioned... Uh, Edward Kimball and John Stopitz. I love saying that name. John Stopitz and John Eglin. And you know what? Nobody knows those names. Nobody knows who those are, but those are the men, y'all, that led Billy Graham to Christ, that led D.L. Moody to Christ, that led Spurgeon to Christ, that led Martin Luther to Christ. Can you imagine that? They made themselves available. They were prayerful. How many people... How much more crowded is heaven today because of those four men that nobody knew who they were, generally, except Norman, knew who those men were, right? They led people to Christ that then led millions of people to Christ. It's unbelievable, really. Fruit, effective rocking and rolling personal ministries that we all have, Bear fruit. Now, y'all, the last mark that I want to park on today, last indicator, is that they're free from prejudice. Look at verse 43. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon the Tanner. He is Peter. Peter stays in Joppa for many days. It's interesting what many days means. We'll get to that in a second. But he stays with Simon the Tanner, and you're probably thinking, how in the world does that verse have anything whatsoever at all to do with prejudice, to do with bias, to do with prejudice? Well, I'm going to tell you, one of the most despicable trades in the mind of a first century Jew, because that's what they all were, was, was being a tanner, because they dealt with the skin of dead animals. If you remember in Judaism... It's so huge issues with being unclean and clean, and you had to go in the ritual bath to become clean if you had become unclean. And if you touched a dead body, or if you touched cow manure, or if you touched a Gentile, whoo, touch a Gentile, you got to go jump and get baptized again because they're so unclean, right? And so that was the, the mind of a, that was the law. Now, I say that's the mind of a first century Jew, but that was the law. And tanners were gross. Tanners touched dead bodies and were unclean all the time. They made leather goods. Well, where's the leather come from? From gross animals. Made the person ritually unclean. And no self-respecting Jew would ever have anything to do with a tanner. In fact, they had to live, there was code, they had to live 70, a minimum of 75 yards from everybody else. It was like a leper, right? 
if, a, if a, the Mishnah, which was an ancient commentary, transmitted orally and then written down, the Mishnah, which was a, co- a Jewish commentary on Scripture, allowed for a woman whose husband became a tanner to divorce him. That was unheard of then. But if he became a gross, nasty tanner, then she could divorce him. It was a big deal. It was a big deal that Simon stayed many days, excuse me, Peter stayed many days with Simon, a tanner. Well, what you got here is Peter. Think about it. Peter, he's born a Jew. He's still a Jew. He's raised a Jew. Been a Jew the whole time. Raised in all of the traditional sort of prejudices that came along with being a first century Jew. Them Gentiles, man, you ain't going to touch them. Them Samaritans, we're not going to touch them. We're not going to touch, uh, not gonna touch this, this tanner over here. Ooh, gross. We're not doing that. Make us unclean. So he had all this stuff that I'm sure had been passed down from grandmom and granddaddy to mom and dad to, to him. All these things that are passed down, all the traditions and all of the sort of ceremonies that would fix all that. All the prejudices had been passed down from generation to generation. And prejudices die hard. Do do they not? They die hard. So then Peter finds himself all of a sudden in Acts chapter 8, if y'all remember, hugging on and sharing the gospel with Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. Samaritans? Anybody remember what they called the Samaritans? Half-breeds. That's what they called them. Half-Jewish. They weren't worth half a nickel is what they said because they're half-breeds. And in Acts 8, Peter finds himself hugging on and sharing the gospel with Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans. We're going to see in a few weeks in in chapter 10 that Peter's going to have to accept the Gentiles they even worse than the Samaritans. Samaritans are half-breeds. The Gentiles are f- full-breeds. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But he's, he's, he's going to meet and hug on and embrace Cornelius, a Gentile. Going to have to call Cornelius a brother. Like, no way. That is another tough one. So all of this tradition and all this junk that's been passed down to Peter from generation to generation to generation. Just go read the book of Ruth. She's a Moabitess. Look at Jesus' lineage in Matthew chapter 1. You see all these foreign people that are their half-breeds and their Gentiles and their sinners and all this stuff and all of that, like all of that is packed in to what's going on in Peter's head, and all that tradition comes crashing down. Jesus changes everything. 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 You take this pair of glasses off that Paul calls the old self, and Jesus gives you a slick new pair of Costas, and you put those on, and everything looks different. If you're a new creation, if you're born again, If you're actually saved, he changes everything. And it seems like, it's weird, it seems like it's no big deal almost for for the Lord to heal the beggar at the beautiful gate in Acts chapter 3, if you remember that. He heals the beggar at the beautiful gate. Not a big deal. It seems like it's not a big deal two weeks ago when we talked about the Lord healing this paralyzed guy who'd been in the bed for eight years. Not a big deal. It's almost like the Lord snaps his fingers and, and Dorcas just comes back to life after being dead for for two days, like that's no big deal. None of those things seem like we can accept that. But to reverse a man's thoughts and feelings and emotions, and I'm going to say hate and prejudice, to reverse all of that after he'd been raised in all the traditions and, and, and all this stuff coming from grandma and grandpa, and all the prejudices and all the bias and all the ceremonial rules to change that in, in my mind, that seems like a huge deal. It's like easier to snap your fingers and raise the dead lady up than it is to reverse 
the human mind. And Peter lived with Simon the Tanner for what we believe is a couple of years. That many days in, verse, uh, in that verse, that many days is a couple of years. That's a huge deal. All his peeps are like, you're living with that filthy scum Tanner? And he did for two years. And y'all, if we are going to be effective ministers of the gospel, and if you're a believer, you're a minister of the gospel, you've got a story to tell. If you're a believer, you've got a story to tell. If you're a believer and have a story to tell, you've got friends and family and co-workers that need to hear your story. And it's your story. And for your, in your world, it's better than my story. Because you have standing in front of those people. You have a right to speak in their life because you're friends and your family. And so if we're going to be effective at that, we have got to have a heart that is completely free of prejudice. It is toxic to the message. It is toxic to the message. Toxic to the gospel. You're going to wear a white hood with a Bible in your back pocket? Really? I don't think you're going to be an effective minister of the gospel. And I want to spend the rest of our time today kind of talking about that. And that's, this is an issue that permeates every culture on the planet and has for all time, particularly ours in America. W why? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 that none of us are righteous. Does none of us mean some of us? No, none of us are righteous. He says nobody's good. He says our throat is an open grave. He says our tongue's deceive, full of bitterness, full of curses. He says man is corrupt and man is depraved. He says something in us is so jacked up, so messed up, so wretched, so evil, so corrupt that without God intervening into that, the result would be eternal devastation and eternal damnation without God jumping into our lives. The problem is not COVID. The problem is not unemployment. The problem is not inflation. The problem is not public education. The problem is not masks. We should wear a mask. You got the masked and you got the unmasked. No, that ain't the problem. The problem is not the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. No, it's not, not any. The problem is not any of that stuff. The problem's not materialism. Got too much stuff, got too little stuff. All of that is symptoms. They're just symptoms. The problem, Paul lays out in Romans 3 is the pathetic, horrific condition of an unsaved human heart, of the human heart. And nobody can get away from it. No race, no color, no national origin, black, blue, green, white, purple, whatever. It knows no bounds. Sin infects every human that has ever lived or ever will live. Jesus, he made stuff so simple, right? He said that what comes out of us is what defiles us. What comes out of us is what defiles us. Mark chapter 7. Nothing external. Mass, no mass. Vaccine, no vaccine. He said it's not your culture. It's not your economics. It's not your education. Nothing external to man can pollute him. Not making a belt out of some animal. None of that pollutes a man. Jews said otherwise. They said the exact opposite. It is what comes externally into someone, what they touch, what they eat. I lived 35 years of my life thinking if I ate a shrimp, I'm going to hell. If I had a ham sandwich, I'm going to hell, really. Lived my whole life thinking it is totally external what defiles a man, what makes him unclean. But Jesus said, what comes out of us is an indication of who's in us. Think about that. What comes out of us is an indication of what's inside. And you know what comes out of us often is prejudice. Sometimes it's in the form of racism. Sometimes it's not in the form of racism. But what it always is, is it is a bias towards somebody 
that we've determined is not like us and therefore inferior. I'm fixing to get super real, so here comes the offensive stuff. The people in, quote, North Columbus look down on the people in, quote, South Columbus. I've lived here my whole life. Macon Road is some magical dividing line. Somehow, if you're in North Columbus, you look at it, the bad is on the other side. And if you're in South Columbus, you look up there and say it's a bunch of rich, spoiled brats. Somehow, magically, Macon Road is this dividing line between the good and the bad, the haves and the have-nots. People in North Columbus think that all the people in South Columbus are inferior. People with master's degrees think that the people with no degrees are dumb. And I guess the people with a doctorate think the people with the master's degrees are dumb. Like, I don't know. People with money think that people that are struggling with money are beneath them. Get it? We just get it all out there. Some African-American people think that every white person on the planet is racist. And there's plenty of white people that think every black person on the planet is a criminal. Some people think that every Asian that walks the planet has got an IQ of like 197,000, right? And, and they think that some folks from India got an IQ of 198,000, right? They think many, every Jew is rich. Really? Really? My dad grew up, was born and grew up in what y'all would call was a super low class, almost ghetto neighborhood in New York. Some people are going to say, oh, man, that homeless dude, good for nothing, getting what he deserves. Many times, thank you, Lord, for not making me like them. Think about how silly that is. What did the Pharisees say? At least I'm not a tax collector. It's all nonsense. Every single bit of what I just said is absolute nonsense. It's total nonsense. And it reminds me of a vending machine. And you say, how does that remind you of a vending machine? <laughs> they have come a long time since I was a kid. It used to be that you slid a couple of coins into a vending machine, you pushed a button and out dropped your Fritos or your Coke or whatever it is. Now there's lights and there's levers and there are cranes and codes and chutes that make even just getting the product of production kind of all on its own. It's almost worth the price of the product to see just to see the delivery of it. It's like this drama thing. But one of the greatest advances, and some of you can remember this, and some of you are young and you've only known it this way, but one of the greatest advance, advances in vending machine technology was the ability of a machine to accept paper money instead of just coins. Raise your hand if you remember when they didn't accept paper money. Okay, that it, was, it was a huge deal when they can accept paper money. And especially as prices have gone up on the stuff that's inside the machine, I was relieved that I didn't have to get all up under the seats of my Jeep trying to scrounge a nickel or a dime or I'd open the ashtray up and somehow all the money was stuck together in a big clump in the ashtray and I'm trying to break it all up anyway. But now you could use paper money in a vending machine. Just slide a dollar bill in and get your Funyuns. I get in big trouble for eating Funyuns. But you slide your dollar bill in and get your Coke Zero. That sounds better. Unless the dollar bill gets rejected, <laughs> right? The dollar bill gets rejected because the dollar bill doesn't look good enough. On the surface, the dollar bill doesn't look good enough. I hate it. I don't cuss, but I'm cussing and kicking at the machines when they reject the dollar bill. And you watch your dollar bill get sucked in, you're praying, tell the truth. You're praying, keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it, and all of a sudden it spits it back at you. And, you. and you take it, and you check the little picture, and you're like, okay, I turn it that way. No, no, I turn it that way. You're trying to figure out, is little George Washington's head, like, aim the right way, right? And then you do this thing, don't you? On the side of the machine, you're doing that. And then you're like, ooh, I got to fold this corner. Oh, you see, can y'all see that little corner? That's going to get the bill rejected because it doesn't look just right. Maybe it's not green enough or the gray's not gray enough. Like, I don't know. 
but you do everything you can do to make that thing look right. If it still gets rejected, you're thinking, what is the deal? Because a dollar is a dollar. Whether it's just been printed and it's pristine and it looks just right and the color is just right, it's perfectly the right shade of green to be accepted. Or if it's been folded and wadded and washed and taped back together, it's still a dollar is a dollar. And it used to be worth a dollar. May not be worth a dollar anymore, but a dollar's a dollar. Why should this machine accept a a good-looking dollar bill but reject an old worn-out one? A clean, fresh green bill is of no more value than the old worn-out, taped-up-back-together, darkly stained one. We're just like the vending machine, y'all. We, are, we tend to be way more accepting of those who we have determined look just right, of those people that we've determined have it all together. And we less tend to be less accepting of the people who have been folded up, wadded up, washed up, and, and taped back together. People who have been through the ringer often find themselves spit out by those of us who prefer to accept only the pristine, only the people that look just so. James, New Testament writer James, he wrote to the Christians and he said this, very simple. He shuddered at the fact that followers of Christ could even think about exhibiting prejudice. He imagined a scene in, in his letter in James where two people come into the church one is wearing fine clothes, got his Sunday best on, got a sweater vest on with a little zipper on it, looking good when he walks into church. And then another guy walks in looking not so good, would be like what you would say is a homeless guy that we serve on Monday nights. Probably doesn't smell great. Shoes are jacked up. Probably got holes all up in his britches. Looking terrible. James imagines that scene. And the one in mint condition gets escorted to the front row and the other guy gets taken to the cheap seats. That's what he imagines. And he sums up the argument really in one sentence in James chapter 2. And he says this, my dear brothers and sisters, we've taught this a lot. When he says my dear brothers and sisters, is he talking to believers or unbelievers? Believers. My dear, and if you just, if you don't really, really get that, you can look at the very next phrase, he makes it clear that he's talking to those who name the name of Christ. As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, never think some people are more important than others. That's prejudice for whatever reason. Black, white, blue, green, Jew, Greek, gent, whatever. Don't think some people are worth more and better than others. That kind of behavior is so contrary to Christians because it is so contrary to Christ. Do you get that? It is contrary to Christians because it is contrary to Christ. If I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, I should want to look like him and act like him and talk like him and treat other people like him. That is what a disciple does. A disciple wants to be the master. A disciple wants to look like the master. A disciple wants people to look at him and see the master. When I am weak, he is made strong. That is what being a disciple is. Dollar bills of all kinds who had been repeatedly spit out by others found themselves welcomed and accepted by Christ. Because Jesus was able to, to recognize the inherent value of every single human being as he looked beyond the scars and beyond the skin color and beyond the national origin and all this stuff. All that stuff is so visible and despised by people, but Jesus looked beyond that. He looked beyond it. A human being is a human being. And every single human being has inherent value. Amen. Amen. And that is a human being, whether they're fresh out of the mint 
or whether they've been folded up, wadded up, washed, and just taped back together. There will be a time in your life, is it, if it hasn't, hasn't happened yet, that you will be taped back together. You will be so crushed by something that you will look messed up to the world. Jesus receives all, every one of us as we come to him. Usually, we don't come to him until we're broken and taped back up. We've got to look deep inside people. As, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we've got to look deep inside people. The surface is irrelevant. Like it is so irrelevant. In God's economy, there's not black, there's not white, there's not Chinese, there's not American, there's not homeless and housed, there's not Muslim or Jew or Greek or Asian or rich or poor. I've said this so many times, there's only two buckets of people, lost sinners and saved sinners. That is it in God's economy. Y'all, what comes out of us is a product of who is inside of us. And I have learned over the years from a lot of different teachers. I've learned over the years from a lot of different wise men and women, a lot of different instructors, a lot of really super intelligent theologians. But probably the most influential, the one that I've learned the, the most valuable lessons from is the most famous bear of all, Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh. One famous story, he tries to trap an elephant. There's a t-shirt for anybody that knows what he called elephants. Heffalumps. So Pooh digs a hole to trap the heffalump. He decides to trap the bear, excuse me, the heffalump, with his own favorite food, which we all know is honey. But of course, it's super hard for Winnie the Pooh to part with the honey, and he just can't bear to leave a whole jar in the, in the heffalump trap, so he starts to eat some of it himself. And he excuses himself with the thought that he says it's important to make sure that it really is honey all the way down the jar. Right? Right? It's not just on the surface. It can't just look sweet on the surface. It's got to be. It wouldn't do if there was anything else in there, perhaps some cheese or something, he says, down at the bottom. And so, of course, by the time Winnie the Pooh is finally sure that it's all honey all the way down, then the jar is empty, right? But for Pooh, what matters is what the jar really contains all the way down deep. If it's only got honey on the surface, like, then what's the point? If it just looks like honey on the surface, like, what's the point? If it's not all the way down deep. And, y'all, that is what lies in the heart of what Jesus says about the Pharisees and about their purity laws, about what's on the surface. Here's your made-up word of the day. It's what Jesus says about their superficialityness. That's a good word. If you are riddled with superficialityness, you're messed up like that shouldn't be. Pooh would not be happy with you if you were riddled with superficialityness. Right? What's the point if we li if if we look way underneath and one is not the kind of person that God would always have in mind. But what kind of person does God always have in mind? And it's a person who is pure, not just on the surface, not just on the surface, but all the way down to the very core. And if all we look at is what's on the surface, what's the point? And Jesus is saying, when, what we, when we decide that what we decide is clean or unclean, we miss the whole point. When we decide on our own what is good and bad, we miss the point entirely. When we decide that white is good and black is bad or black is good and white is bad, we completely miss the whole point. And what the Lord is offering us through Jesus Christ and a, and a personal saving relationship with Him is a cure. 
just a cure for the deep level impurities that are inside of us. Being right with God has absolutely nothing to do with trying to follow a bunch of external laws, a bunch of ritual, a bunch of ceremony. That'll just make you a hypocrite. Eventually, you will fall into a pit. Jesus himself is the only remedy for the wickedness and the uncleanness and the prejudices that can infect us all. This is a Christ-likeness issue. This kind of behavior is so contrary to Christians because it's so contrary to Christ. If we name his name, we should want to look like him. Prejudices in all of their forms, y'all, every single form that any kind of prejudice can take, it is contrary to a Christian's walk. And don't excuse grandma's racism because it was a different time then. That was wrong then. It was wrong in the 1900s. It was wrong in the 1800s. It was wrong in the 100s. So don't excuse, that's just the way it was. No, 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 no. We're driving through South Georgia last Sunday coming home, coming across whatever highway goes across the southern part of the state. And we're going through all these little towns. And I've been here my whole life, and I'm talking about towns, Hoboken. Like I thought that was New Jersey, Hoboken, Georgia. And, and I don't even remember some of the names. We were playing like, what's the over-under of the population of these towns? And it was like 75 and 150 and 350 little bitty towns. And I'm searching on the web for like just to see some history because it's kind of cool. Just looking at the history. And I find this town, and I, I'm glad now that I can't remember the name of the town. But here's the story that I read from the Brown, the, I think it was 1920s, 1930s. It said, this black man, elderly black man, is arrested for defending the honor of two black teenage girls that were being, I don't remember the word, abused, molested. It may not even have said that. But he was arrested for defending them. He's thrown in jail. It said the next day, a Baptist pastor and the deputy sheriff got him out of the jail cell and lynched him in the town square. That Baptist pastor, you think he named the name of Christ? I would say that he did. I would say that as he's stringing up this guy, murdering him in the middle of the town square, he's got a Bible in his back pocket. That is contrary, to put it mildly, that is contrary to Christ. And so don't think that because grandmom and granddaddy or great-grandmom and granddaddy, that it was just different back then. No, it was wrong then. It was wrong then. And so we all can bring all that baggage to the table, but if you're a new creation and you take these lenses off and you put the new lens on, Jesus changes everything. And it may die slow deaths. I get that too. Prejudices die slow deaths. It's a daily struggle for many, many people. I would say this to you. If you've never, and I don't know what your response to this is today. I don't, maybe you've been a maybe you've been a Christian for 20 years, 10 years, 5 years, 30 years, like I don't know, but you know that inside of you there's still a little of that. There's still a little of the I'm better than them thing. Your response ought to be I need to pray through it. I need to talk with my friends and my family. And I need to pray through it. I need to get the words out of my mouth. Lord, take this away from me. I know that it is contrary to Christ. Lord, take it away from me. Pray it every day. I don't know what your response is. That may be a response. But I would say this. If you've never taken the old sunglasses off and put the sweet coasters on, let today be the day that you do that. And that's not a hard thing. It may be hard to surrender, but it's not a complicated formula, y'all. I mean, it is as simple as turning away from the sin, doing the very best I can do to turn away from the sin and turn towards the Lord. 
confess with your mouth that he is the Savior, confess that his death on the cross took care of those sin, even the worst sin in the world, the worst sin that you could ever imagine, that death on that cross covered that. And I believe that. And I believe that he walks out of that grave alive. That's it. Cry out to him to save you. He will save you. He is of his word. And he is a promise keeper. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we are so thankful, Lord, that you are who you say you are. Lord, we are so thankful that you have given us images of, of you healing the sick, of you raising the dead, of you healing paralyzed. Lord, let us understand that you heal it all. Lord, as we sit here today, let us understand that you can change minds. You can change prejudices. You can change hearts. Lord, you can change the way that we look at the world. And so, Lord, anybody that is here today that's watching online, Lord, if they've got hate inside of them, Lord, I pray that you would just take it away. In this moment, just take it away. And, Lord, for anybody that is here that doesn't know you today, my prayer is that they would consider the offer that you make before their head hits the pillow tonight. Lord, that they would say yes to that offer. And so, Lord, we love you. And it is in your son's precious name. Amen.